we continue in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> we're in the middle of chapter 7, and this environment that we're in here is Jesus has come into Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. He's now in the temple, and he is about to teach again. John doesn't give a very complete record of all that Jesus taught during his ministry. He picks and chooses what will emphasize his chief purpose, and that is to make it very clear to his hearers, his readers, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. At the end of chapter 6, Jesus tells his, his followers, there are some of you who do not believe, meaning Judas. There were also many in the crowd who did not believe in the claims that he made about himself. Even though they had witnessed these amazing miracles, especially the feeding of the 5,000, they were still doubtful and skeptical about who he was. And Jesus knew from the very beginning who did not believe. Jesus knew from the very beginning when he selected Judas as a member of the Twelve that he, in fact, would be the one that betrays him. We looked last week in the opening verses of chapter 7 and verse 5 where not even Jesus' own brothers believed that he was who he claimed to be. But he was not deterred by the unbelief that surrounded his life and his ministry, but instead he relentlessly continued to confront unbelievers with his claims and his promises, boldly telling the truth about who he is and why he had come. And as a result of this intentionality in Jesus' teaching, the hostility, the hardness of his enemies continued to grow and increase, eventually culminating in his death on the cross. Now, as you remember from last week, the Feast of Tabernacles is about six months after the Feast of the Passover, meaning that Jesus is in the final six months of his lives of his life. And in these first few verses in chapter 15, we see that Jesus did not go to the feast at the beginning as his brothers urged him to do, much like he will in six months when he goes for the feast of Passover and has the triumphal entry. It wasn't God's time yet for Jesus to have this public arrival heralding him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That would be reserved for a later time. The crowds had already gone to Jerusalem for this required feast, but Jesus went up privately as if in secret. Not secretly, he wasn't afraid, but it wasn't his time, and so he went up as if in secret is what verse 10 tells us. And so it is in the middle of the feast, it is the halfway point, and if you remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most celebrated of the three required major feasts that the Jews were to observe. It was a time of celebrating the completion of the harvest. It was a time of rest and relaxation and commemorating all that God had done for them. Jerusalem would be absolutely overflowing with pilgrims from all over Israel who have come to be a part of this festival. From the outer parts of the land, Jews from everywhere are coming in. And so Jesus goes up into the temple, which is the customary location for the rabbis, and he's going to begin to teach. Now, this unexpected public appearance in the middle of the feast has obviously caught the Jewish leadership off guard. They were likely looking for him at the beginning and were surprised to find him in the temple in the middle of the festival. And because Jesus did not go publicly, but instead went in the middle, they were not able to seize him and put hands on him because it was not yet time. If you remember from last time, some within the crowd still had somewhat of a favorable opinion about Jesus, saying that he was a good man, while others said that he is someone who leads the people astray. 
There wasn't any public declaration by the Jewish leadership about Jesus. The people weren't ready to state their opinion for fear of reprisal by the Jewish leadership. But despite the mounting opposition that Jesus faced in his ministry, especially in the final, leading up to the final six months of his ministry, here we're going to find him boldly proclaim the uncensored truth about who he is and about the mission that the Father has sent him on. We pick up in verse 14 of chapter 7. We'll read all the way through verse 24 this morning. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were then astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So this is the beginning of the teaching that Jesus has in the temple for as many who are around him to hear. There are many rabbis who have many different followings, but Jesus is now in the temple in the midst of teaching here at the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll divide this passage into four major sections. The first one is, his teaching is from the Father. Now verse 14 is a summarization that John does not identify, but it simply says, But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. We don't know exactly what he taught. What we do hear from the crowd and then from Jesus is a response to his teaching. We don't know. The gospel accounts within the other gospels don't tell us exactly what Jesus was teaching. But this is how it begin. Jesus is now teaching. It doesn't say what But likely, as was Jesus' custom, he would quote large portions of the Old Testament explaining to the people how this applies to him, his ministry, and what the Father had sent him to do. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, roughly three years of being out amongst the public, teaching and performing many miracles, we can give a summarization of the many different things that Jesus has taught. He has taught that he has come down from heaven, that he has been sent into the world by the Father to be the Savior of the world, that he, in fact, is the source of eternal life, that he is equal with the Father in power and honor and glory, and he, in fact, claims to be one with the Father. He has the power to raise the dead and even raise himself from the dead. He is the one to whom the Old Testament Scriptures have all pointed. He is the supreme judge who will one day return in glory to exact judgment upon mankind. He claims to be without sin, to have all authority in heaven and on earth, to have authority to forgive sins, to have authority over the Sabbath, to have authority to answer prayer. He is taught to be greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham, and even greater than Moses. He is taught to be the bread of life, 
the only source of spiritual sustenance. He's taught that He is the light of the world, that He is the resurrection and the life. He's taught that He is the Messiah. He has taught that He is, in fact, the one and only Son of God. Now, they've heard a lot of this in His nearly three years of teaching. It is likely that Jesus has picked something within this large category of sermons or discourses, and He is reinforcing who it is He claims to be. Jesus begins to teach. Number two, His teaching amazes them. Verse 15, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educating? So this is not the only place within the four Gospels that it tells us that Jesus' teaching had amazed the people. That word astonished means to marvel or to wonder. You can rest assured that they had never heard anybody teach the way Jesus has taught before. Now, there's a significant contrast between the empty religious teaching of the Jews and the scribes, the Pharisees, and the words of life that come from Jesus. If you know anything about the rabbinic tradition, they took the basis of the law and they extrapolated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules and laws and requirements and expectations that they then imposed upon the people. And most people in this time were not able to read for themselves the Holy Scriptures. And so they took what the Pharisees would say as fact. It was a burden to them and they were forced to live under this burden. And Jesus shows up and begins to say things they've never heard before making application that they've never expected to hear before because He speaks the words of life. But for the Jewish leadership, they were not necessarily amazed at the content of what Jesus taught. They were amazed that Jesus didn't have the formal, accredited, rabbinic tradition to have the audacity or the authority to teach in the temple. In their minds, Jesus doesn't possess the proper authority to teach because He doesn't have their seal of approval. In other words, if we're going to listen to what you say and we're going to take you seriously, we have to be able to see some kind of an earthly accreditation, some kind of an earthly approval in order for you to say the things you're saying. And Jesus had no such authority. He needed no such approval. So, in their minds, his words should be disregarded because he had not been connected to the approved, established group of leaders. How does Jesus deal with the objections that they have to his lack of accreditation? Well, he says very simply, my teaching isn't my own. Verse 16, he answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. His teaching doesn't come from men or tradition or from the authorities. It comes straight from the Father. His knowledge of the Scripture wasn't due to his study under a human institution or under some other respected rabbi. His knowledge was due to the fact that he is the eternal Word. Rabbis gained their knowledge and they gained their authority from other rabbis and they would commonly cite other rabbis in their teaching or they would cite previous precedent if they were asked to render judgment about a certain circumstance or about a certain teaching of Scripture. We read in Mark chapter 7, verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders but eat their bread with impure hands. 
Now, the expectation of cleansing before you eat was not a part of the Mosaic ceremonial law. It was something that they had extrapolated from the ceremonial law, ceremonial law and now imposed that upon the people. If you were a good, faithful Jew, you would follow the teaching of the elders and wash your hands before you sat down to eat. It wasn't about hygiene. It was simply about ceremonial cleansing. His teaching is different from the rabbis. And Jesus is continually telling the people and the leaders that He has come from the Father to do and to say what the Father has shown Him and told Him to do and say. He made His claims about coming from the Father and speaking on behalf of the Father many, many, many times in His teaching. In fact, we've already seen about a dozen times in the Gospel of John. He continues to say that in the other Gospel accounts. Not only is His his teaching very different from that of the rabbis, His teaching is very different from that of the Old Testament prophets. Although the Old Testament prophets were sent by God and therefore proclaimed God's truth, all of them had to say, Thus saith the Lord. Well, Jesus didn't have to say that. Jesus says, I say to you, not thus saith the Lord. There are dozens and dozens of references of where this is true. In fact, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount... In Matthew chapter 5, a sampling is in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I can guarantee you they've never heard a scribe or a Pharisee say something like that, but that was Jesus' application of the Old Testament truth. In verse 22 of Matthew chapter 5, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus' teaching is from God because He speaks the words of God, because He was sent from God, and most importantly, because He is God. He doesn't need a stamp of approval from a rabbi or from some accredited institution to say, you have the authority to teach in the temple of the Father. So Jesus sits down to teach in the temple, again revolutionizing the lives and experiences of the Jews that hear Him. We look at number two in our breakdown of this passage. His teaching can be tested. Verse 17. Of all the claims that Jesus is making about Himself, here's where He's starting to narrow down the emphasis. If anyone is willing to do His will, meaning the Father's will, he will know of the teaching. Whatever it was that Jesus has already taught about Himself in this setting, He's basically saying, if you will do the will of the Father, you will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from Myself. Now, notice the condition to discerning whether or not what Jesus teaches is true and from the Father, or is not true and is simply from a deranged man who is making ridiculous claims about himself. The condition is if. If you are willing to do His will, then you will discover for yourself the truth of the teaching that Jesus makes about Himself. If you're not willing to do His will, it is very likely that you will never discover the truth that Jesus is teaching about Himself. You see, this is a faith commitment, not a human intellectual recognition of truth. You know, you can read the Bible and you can see facts, 
You can see names and dates, and there's a certain, there's a certain part of that that you can remember and you can, you can agree upon. But there is spiritual truth that you can read every day, and if you're not willing to do what the Father is asking you to do or teaching you to do, you will likely only see this as words on a page, helpful social teaching, but in no way transformative in my life. This challenge to see if you are willing to do what the Lord has called you to do is not new. It is consistent with them, what the Old Testament has also taught. Deuteronomy 4.29 But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Jeremiah 29.13 You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. So what we see in this, number one, is the human approach in spiritual truth and what Jesus is teaching is this. Seeing is believing. If I can see it, if I can feel it, if I can explain it rationally, intellectually, hey, then I'm willing to believe it. Well, there's no faith in that, is there? If you remember from what we've already looked at in Jesus' encounter with the religious leadership and the crowds, is that they wanted the physical, not the spiritual. They wanted to see the miracles. They wanted to see Him perform these dazzling spectacles. They've already seen the feeding of the 5,000. They've already seen the feeding of the 4,000. And they want to see something else. More signs, more miracles to verify this truth that you're teaching. If you're willing to show us more, prove more, then maybe, maybe, maybe we'll be willing to submit to your authority and your teaching and do your will. The second alternative in this spiritual truth is the spiritual approach, and that is believing is seeing. Now, this is not a name it, claim it kind of, of thing here. Those who have truly set their hearts on doing the Father's will are the ones who are hearing and believing in what Jesus is saying to them. There are many, many people who have come to know Christ accidentally because they just want to please the Father. And they discover for themselves the words of truth within the New Testament as Jesus reveals himself to the world. You see, when we truly give our lives to Christ, we will then see the truth because it's a faith venture. It's not a human intellect venture that we set out on in order to discover the truth of Jesus' claims. To give yourself to Christ, you must give your whole self to Him, not just your religious self. Not just your Sunday morning from 9 to noon and maybe a Bible study some other part of the week. It's giving your whole self. It's loving the Lord, as Tony alluded to, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. When we do that, we discover the truth about who Jesus is, about what God has done, and it absolutely changes our life. The reality is, most people come to Christ with reservations of some kind, and they say, well, you know, I'd really like to give my whole self to Christ, but I'm not really sure what He's going to require me to do. So I'm going to get my fire insurance. I'm going to keep Him at arm's length. And when it's an emergency and I need Him, I know I'll be close by. But I'm really not so sure about giving everything to Him because I just don't know what He's going to do. Partial commitments will never know the full truth of His love, of His goodness, of His patience, of His presence, of His promises, of His peace, of the hope that we have in Christ. 
A partial commitment gets a partial blessing if you can even make a partial commitment to Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, Jesus' truth can be tested, and we test it by being committed to doing the Father's will by faith, whatever that means for us. Number three, his teaching glorifies God. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, when Jesus says this, he's really getting to the heart of the debate that the religious leaders have in their minds about him. Now, listen, if Jesus' intent was to promote himself and to gain glory for himself and to get this huge following of people, wouldn't Jesus say what they wanted Him to hear? Wouldn't He cater to their whims and their desires? Wouldn't He just be putting on a miracle show every day of the week? If you thought Tuesday was great, come back for Saturday. It's going to be even better. But Jesus isn't about promoting Himself. He's not about getting glory for Himself. He's about doing what the Father has told Him to do, saying what the Father has told Him to say. He has no mixed motives. His commitment is to simply obey the Father in everything that He says and does. Now, you can be sure there's two characteristics of false teachers. Number one, they speak on their own authority, or in the way this verse is phrased, they speak from themselves. To speak from yourself, that's what that means. It means you're speaking on your own authority. They don't rely on God's Word. They rely on their own understanding, their own special revelation, their own truth, or it is the truth of men. They become their own authority. Number two, they seek to glorify themselves. They really aren't interested in in pointing glory towards the Father They want it all for themselves. They say enough to make you think that they are true servants of God, that they are humble in their walk before the Lord, but in reality they are simply about self-promotion. Now these two characteristics speak directly to the rabbis of Jesus' day. They speak on their own authority. They get together and they have a meeting and they decide what is true and they communicate to the people and they simply become their own authority. They seek to glorify themselves in the positions that they hold. We see this in Matthew chapter 5. I didn't make it. I'm sorry. Listen to me as I read this. Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 7. Jesus speaking about the Pharisees. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. This is what life was all about as a Jewish leader. It was about speaking from your own authority. It was about gaining glory for yourself. Now, not all of them are that way. We do know from John's Gospel and others that some of these religious leaders did in fact come to know Christ. But I can tell you this, they were committed to doing God's will. They weren't bothered by not being their own authority or seeking glory for themselves. Glory seekers are all about self with the fake spiritual reference to God, and this is so prevalent in our modern church culture today, most especially in televised religious program. I'll take a minute, and I'm going to share with you a true story. This is several years ago, and I'm going to withhold the name. But there was a story of a pastor TV preacher who was very known, traveled around the country doing all kinds of different ministries and crusade type things.
And he tells a story of one day he was praying in preparation for that night's revival meeting and he was instantly sucked out of his room and something like a cable car and he was instantly ushered into heaven. He met Peter, he met Paul, he met David, he met Abraham, he ate of the special fruit that was growing on the trees that gave him strength and insight. He saw the angels, he saw the throne of God, he saw the feet of God, he saw the glory of God, and he even met Jesus himself. He tells this story, I want to read this, this is, these are his words precisely. So as this gathering in heaven was about to end and Jesus was about to go back home, He was explaining how Jesus had told him of how much he was dreading sending people to hell at the day of judgment. So this is the quote from this individual. He says, I wanted to reach out and comfort him. So I put my hand on the Lord. I could tell that Jesus was hurting. This is the glorified Jesus in heaven hurting. And he needs the encouragement of a humble man who has been miraculously ushered into heaven. He said, goes on to say, I didn't know before how much He, Jesus, needed me to reach out to other people. I have always thought of how much I needed Him, not much how He needs me. He smiled at me and said, I chose you, no one else wanted you, and I need you. Later that night, as His vision, as His as his spectacle in heaven has come to an end, He says, He walked up to the church And he had a visual shining like Moses did, like Jesus did at the transfiguration. He said, there was a light on my face. I had been in the presence of the glory of God. I didn't even preach that night. I didn't say anything, but people began falling under the power of God's Spirit. There was ministry throughout the auditorium without me saying anything more. That's an individual who is his own authority, That's an individual who seeks his own glory. And if you were an unsuspecting individual sitting out in the crowd that day, you would have said, oh my gosh, I need to listen to everything that man says. He's had a special revelation from God, right? Well, apparently they hadn't read the fact that Jesus said, go and make disciples. There's another part in here where he talks about the need for him to tell the world that Jesus is coming back. I guess nobody knew from the Bible that Jesus was going to come back. But he really needed this preacher to come back and be his spokesman on this world. There's a good Greek word for that kind of experience. You know what it is? It's baloney. It just doesn't happen. And it's ridiculous that this stuff gets spewed forth and gullible people go, wow, this man is special. Number four, as we look at our outline here, his teaching enables righteous judgment. This is really the point in this whole encounter up to this point in this discourse in the temple. Verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, Jesus had prepared the perfect defense of himself and of his teachings and of his actions that are now at the forefront of this encounter with the, with the religious leadership. So here we have in verse 19 is an extension of the test in verse 17. In verse 17, if anyone is willing to do the will of the Father, you will know that my teaching is true. And it's also an extension of verse 18, the authority of his teaching and his teaching glorifying the Father and not himself. So let's walk through this. Number one, the question. 
Did not Moses give you the law? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The religious leaders would have emphatically shouted, Yes, Moses gave us the law. Yes, Moses gave us the law. They revered Moses and they claimed quite inaccurately to live out the law of Moses. And so for the Jew, if you remember from previous study, eternal life was found in knowing and observing the law. The more law you knew, the more spiritual life you had. To accuse a rabbi of not upholding the law of Moses would be an insult of a grand scale. The law of Moses is divided into three sections, the moral law, the social law, and the ceremonial law. And it can be argued that the Ten Commandments is really the foundation of the social and the moral law. Number two, we see the accusation Jesus makes against the religious leaders. And yet none of you carries out the law. Now for any good Jew, those are fighting words. None of you carries out the law. Well, Jesus has not only described the condition of the Jewish people in general, not only of the religious leadership that he's dealing with, but really of all people of all time. None of us carries out the law, not perfectly. But his accusation against the religious leadership isn't about their inability to carry out the law perfectly. It's about their unwillingness to observe the law of Moses. There is a determined unwillingness to listen to the words of Jesus, to do the will of the Father, and to make the Word of God the absolute supreme authority in their religious practice. Because they are so steeped in their own traditions and in their own teachings, and determined to never be wrong, they cannot see their unwillingness to obey God and listen to His words as spoken through the one and only Son. So there's the proof now here and the accusation that Jesus is making. Why do you seek to kill me? Vani, what is the fourth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. Did you know that the social law is filled with teaching about how to treat other people? Nowhere in the Old Testament... Are you allowed to kill an innocent person? It is strictly forbidden in the Mosaic law to kill an innocent person. So the question that Jesus asks about the law of Moses and the accusation that none of them seeks to carry it out is proven in the fact that they are trying to kill Jesus. The Jewish leaders wanted nothing more than to end the life of this renegade who is disrupting their religious Practice. Here's the response in verse 20 from the people. You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? So remember, some in the crowd think he's a good man. Some think he's leading the people astray. But here is an accusation that Jesus is either absolutely crazy, as was accused in other parts of Scripture, or he is literally walking arm in arm with Satan. That's the only two alternatives you have there. He's either nuts or he is literally demon-possessed. Either way, many in the crowd are ignorant of the fact that the Jewish leaders have a desire to end Jesus' life, but they have not yet issued a formal pronouncement on Jesus, and so people are afraid to state their own opinion for fear that the Jewish leadership would come against them. This final pronouncement about Jesus is going to come six months later, at the mock trials that they have, where they say, you must be put to death. 
So here's the lesson in this. This is what Jesus really wants to get at. The lesson begins in verse 21. Jesus answered them and said, I did one deed and you all marvel. Now this one deed that Jesus is referring to is the healing of the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda that we looked at, excuse me, Bethsaida, that Bethesda that we looked at back in John chapter 5. He had the audacity to heal this paralytic man on the Sabbath and tell him to pick up his mat and to go home. So some scholars argue that chapter 7 really needs to come on the heels of chapter 5 and omit the feeding of the 5,000, but you really don't need to get concerned with that. Jesus had not been back to Jerusalem since that healing. And so here's what Jesus is calling back to their attention. I did the one deed, the healing of the man at Bethesda, and you are all marvel. Letter A, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. So the Jews were outraged because this violated their teaching about working on the Sabbath. Now, the commandment is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? You're supposed to worship God. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So logically that means if you are a farmer, you don't farm on the Sabbath. If you sell on the market, you don't sell on the Sabbath. But the Jews created 39 different categories of work which would then violate the singular restriction against working on the Sabbath. So they had apparently created a law that, had, that forbids you from carrying your mat even if you've just been made whole after being paralyzed for some 38 years. So, Jesus is talking about the fact that he healed on the Sabbath. Letter B, the Jews circumcise on the Sabbath. Verse 22, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Now, you'll notice the parenthetical statement here that John adds, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. So the reality is this, circumcision predates Moses. Circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant. It was a way for the people to be identified as the unique and peculiar people who God has chosen for Himself. So because circumcision predates Moses, circumcision also predates the Mosaic Law. Within the Law of Moses it is instructed that you will circumcise all males on the eighth day. If you are a convert to Judaism, then you're going to be circumcised as well. So they would observe this instruction to circumcise on the eighth day, even if it fell on a Sabbath. Now, not only was circumcision a physical way of identifying the people of Israel, it was also considered a a necessary ritual to ceremonially cleanse the one being circumcised. It wasn't just a physical act. There was a ritual. It was ceremonialized and it was necessary and it was a symbol of redemption. You are now part of God's covenant. You are part of God's people. You are part of God's redeemed. That's what is wrapped up in this act of circumcision. Letter C. Which cleansing is superior? This is Jesus' question to them. Verse 20, excuse me, verse 23. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? So, not being Jewish, not being rabbis, we don't really understand the significance of what Jesus is doing here. So this is called causistic method of argument. This was a tact 
This was a tactic that was very popular within rabbis as they dealt with others and as they dealt with their teachings. So it's causistic. The, rab- the rabbinic causistic argument set laws side by side and determined the priority of one law over the other when in any life situation it appeared that there was a conflict between these two laws. Now, within the teaching of God, that's probably not going to happen. But within their vast rabbinic tradition, it's going to happen a lot. And so the rabbis would employ this causistic argument to determine which of the two laws can we violate because it has a higher priority than the one we're willing to violate. This is what Jesus is doing. In Jesus' argument, he's refusing to be categorized as a breaker of the law in the same way that the rabbis argued that they were not breaking the law when they were circumcising male babies on the eighth day, even though it may in fact take place on a Sabbath. The reason was circumcision took precedence over the Sabbath. That is what they had decided. So if circumcision takes precedence over the Sabbath, follow this, this is kind of confusing, if circumcision takes precedence over the Sabbath, which is a sign of a ceremonial cleansing and of redemption, then why would making an entire man well, which is a more complete sign of cleansing and redemption, why would that not take precedence? over the Sabbath. That's Jesus' causistic argument. All they could really say is, it doesn't. You're right, we're wrong. But are they going to say that? Absolutely not. They are going to reject it because it doesn't fit with what they had decided. His critics probably didn't agree with him, but his argument was perfect in a Jewish causistic debate in determining Which of the two laws are you going to have a precedence over? So Jesus' assessment here, letter D, is your judgment is wrong. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The implication is that they are judging on merely external factors with no regard for what is actually right. Those external factors are filtered through their own hypocritical judgment, their own traditions, their own preferences, and their own desires. And their own ideology, they thought it was okay for them to circumcise on the Sabbath, but they could never allow a whole man, a man to be made whole on the Sabbath. That was a violation of the Sabbath law. So rather than making a faith-based assessment of Jesus, of his teachings and of his actions, They have made a superficial, external observation filtered through their own moral and theological understanding, which is severely flawed. This call to righteous judgment means that our judgment should be based on the absolutes of God's Word and the principles that we derive from it, not on our own ideals, not on our own expectations, and certainly not on our own preferences. You know, one of the most popular and most often quoted verses in the Bible is today. Judge not, lest you be judged. Have you heard that? Judge not, lest you be judged. John 3.16 is no longer the most famous Bible verse. It's judge not, lest you be judged. And so this gets quoted by believers and unbelievers alike in an effort to remove 
any conclusions from being drawn about the lifestyle one chooses to live. Hey, you don't have the right to look at my life. Don't judge me lest you be judged. That's what they say. Some wrongly conclude that there is to be no judgment at all about individual choices as if there is no absolute truth. Now, do we believe in an absolute truth? We sure do. What do we believe is the absolute truth? We believe it's God's Word. So when our behavior, our attitude, our actions are in a direct contradiction to the truth of God's Word, it isn't about judging. It's about holding someone accountable for living in sin, walking in sin, or committing sin. But the world, and probably falsely professing Christians, don't want any judgment to fall upon themselves because they found a way to justify their behavior and they don't want anybody shedding light on the sin that may exist in their life. In this instance, Jesus is calling for an end. Excuse me, Jesus isn't calling to an end for all judgment, but it is a call for the Pharisees to judge his actions righteously about his healing a paralytic man and making him whole on the Sabbath. Now let's go back to the context of Matthew chapter 7 and this world's idea about not committing judgment on one another. Verses 7, excuse me, chapter 7, 2 through 5. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? Here's the point. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, this judge not lest you be judged is a prohibition against hypocritical judgment. We don't have the right to judge someone or to condemn someone for the very same things that we ourselves do. By the way, this is what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for, is that they condemned the people for the exact things they, were, they, they themselves were doing, but they couldn't see it. That's why He called them whitewashed tombs. They were dead. They had no spiritual life in themselves. So when you and I focus on the lives of other people, all we can see is the external, right? We can't read. We can't judge the hearts of man. Only God knows the hearts of man. Now, we can look at their behavior and say, well, you know, that's a sinful action you have right there. Um, You can't steal from the grocery store. You know, you can't commit adultery against your spouse. That's wrong. The Bible says no good. You can't beat someone up just because they made you mad. You can't do that either. So we can judge clearly sinful behavior, but we're not to have judgmentalism towards others based upon what we see only on the outside. We have to be very, very careful about that because we can become very self-righteous, we can become very condemning, and we can be absolutely wrong. In this instance, in our passage, we can trust Jesus' teaching because it is from God. How much of it? Absolutely all of it. It can be tested. If we are committed to doing the will of the Father, then we will know that the teaching of Jesus is true. We also know that Jesus' teaching glorifies the Father. It brings people to Him. It honors Him. It's in accordance with His desires. And lastly, His Word enables righteous judgment.
We'll continue to go through this, and I'm really debating on whether to continue this next Sunday on Easter because I think very clearly we have an Easter connection here in this teaching at the temple. But when you ask yourselves, am I willing to really give to Jesus everything that I have? How well do we follow through with that? Do we have any reservations? Is there an arm's length that we're holding him at? And if we're doing that, if we're not giving ourselves to him, there is a lack of faith in his teaching. Is Jesus setting out to harm us? Is he setting out to embarrass us? Is he setting out to bring great difficulty against our lives? Absolutely not. He wants us to be conformed into the image of himself. That is the mark of true Christianity, is being changed to become more like Christ. How much of Jesus' teaching do you trust? Is he really and truly your everything? Are you absolutely and completely dependent upon him? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are imperfect in our walk with you. But this really isn't about perfection. It's about determination to sin, to love you, to live for you, to obey you, to wholeheartedly embrace into our lives all of the teaching that we call God's word. Not just to pick and choose, not to set aside because it's hard or demanding, After all, you've called us to lay down our lives for your sake, and those who do that will take it up again. And that's a promise that you've given to us, and we thank you for that. Father, we're so thankful for the graciousness that you show to us in the imperfect execution of our walk. I pray that as we come to terms with just how much you love us and just how gracious and merciful you are towards us, that would motivate us to give more of ourselves to you. God, speak to our hearts in this time of commitment, this time of decision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.